You should celebrate yourself every day, but some days you should celebrate with jewelry. Whether you want to commemorate an unforgettable moment or just bring some added sparkle to your collection, Blue Nile can offer you expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com today and experience the ease and convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com. BlueNile.com. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Welcome to the Capital Club Podcast. This episode is brought to you by Excelsior Capital, an investment platform focused on democratizing private equity by providing individuals access to direct opportunities. To learn more about the firm and the Capital Club community, visit our website at www.excelsiorgp.com and connect with Brian on LinkedIn. Hello and welcome back to the Capital Club podcast. And I'm, today I'm here with Travis Harms. Travis, how are you today? I'm doing well, Brian. How are you? Good, thank you. Travis leads Mercer Capital's family business advisory services practice, helping multi-generational family businesses with their valuation, strategic corporate finance, and shareholder education needs. And I must say, Travis, I've done a lot of these interviews and conversations I think your firm might have the most content that I've ever run across by any professional services firm. So kudos to you. You guys don't mess around. You take it very seriously. Well, thanks, Brian. That's that's something that we we really strive to keep our prospects and our clients informed about what we're thinking about these days. And there's, and there's one that we're going to reference a lot during the conversation, which is this, call it a guide that you put together, but the 12 questions that keep family business directors awake at night. Before we get into that, though, I'd love to get a little bit of your background yourself professionally and then maybe dig a little bit deeper into what exactly the firm does. Sure. So Mercer Capital has been helping families and and other business owners since 1982. Uh, We're a valuation and advisory firm. So we focus on issues around gift and estate planning, ESOP valuations, and valuations in connection with transactions. I've been with the firm since 1999, and today I had our family business advisory services practice. So we, in, within my practice, we really focus on helping family businesses address not only their valuation needs, but also thinking more broadly about their family business and how they engage with their shareholders, particularly around three key questions. What should our dividend policy be? What should our capital structure be? And how should we be going about capital budgeting for our investment program? Yeah, and, and let's just kind of jump right into it because there's a lot of ground to cover within the book that you put together. And we use those three 
legs of the stool to help guide the conversation. You talked about kind of this concept of family cohesion, shareholder engagement. Right now, I think it's more important than ever with what's going on in the greater world. So how do you promote that positivity within kind of the stakeholder community of a family office or a family business? Yeah, you know, Brian, I've always been struck by, it seems like a great irony to me that public companies for whom their shareholders are largely an unknown mass of anonymous people have dedicated resources focused on investor relations, telling their story and making sure that their shareholders are engaged with where the company is headed and what strategic decisions it's making. And then you contrast that with how many family businesses go about it. Now, these are people where the shareholders presumably mean something to you. And yet the idea that there should be a, a deliberate, intentional program of interfacing with those shareholders and keeping them engaged and informed about the family business often seems to be an afterthought. And that, that seems backwards to me. seems like, if anything, family businesses should be more focused on engaging and relating to shareholders than public companies are. Yeah, I completely agree. And it's interesting when you talk to some families, the ones that do this the best are oftentimes, in my experience, the ones that they're the majority, majority shareholder, they're still a large stockholder, but it is a publicly traded company and they can use those resources Internally, but I think that's changing, right? You're seeing families have a chief learning officer embedded within the family business or yep. family office. And so I think that that is changing, but this really goes to your second point, which is this broader concept of communication. How do you communicate clearly? How do you keep the lines of communication open? So what, in your opinion, is best practices there from the communication perspective to help that kind of positive shareholder engagement? Yeah, you know, I think... It starts with not taking your shareholders for granted, right? So in contrast to those public companies where shareholders are presumably there because they've chosen to purchase this stock, a lot of your family shareholders were simply born into it. And I think there can be a tendency on the part, part of family leadership to thereby take those shareholders for granted. They didn't pay for this stock and they're not leaving, so we can safely ignore them. And I think when we move past that kind of limiting mindset to more of an engagement mindset, then we can adopt a rhythm of disclosures. You're not trying to, not all the family is going to have a seat on the board. That would not be productive. That would not be in anyone's best interest. But as shareholders, they do have the right to certain information about the company and setting up a, a rhythm of quarterly or monthly kind of snapshots, dashboards, what are the relevant measures that we can share with our shareholders on a periodic basis that will help keep them informed? And, and because we're keeping them informed, we're reducing the opportunity for mistrust, which always increases when someone feels like they're being kept in the dark. And how can we be consistent and deliberate with that approach? Yeah, I would say from in my world, the minute that people feel like they're not being fully informed or, or being transparent, their minds go to the darkest, most evil place possible on their assumptions. And so you want to front run that to the extent possible. So digging a little bit deeper into this kind of engagement and communication perspective, 
how have you been working with your clients dealing with this concept now that we have maybe three or or possibly even four generations working at the same time within a family business, which really was a dynamic that didn't occur 25 or 50 years ago. Right. That can be a, a unique challenge. And um, for, for those businesses that have truly achieved multi-generational status, I think what emerges is that there are a number of different shareholder clientels. So a generation in their 50s and 60s might have very different needs and expectations regarding cash flow from the business and future capital appreciation from the business than a younger generation. Um, so balancing the needs and keeping each within the shareholder base, keeping folks informed as to, hey, here's what this group is targeting in terms of their return. And here's what this other group is targeting in terms of the composition of their return. And here are the realities of the business and what sorts of returns it would naturally supply given where it is in its life cycle. So that can help surface opportunities to either readjust expectations or perhaps provide liquidity to those to those elements of the family shareholder base that maybe just can't get in alignment with what the business and what the bulk of the shareholder base, what the business can provide and what the other shareholders are expecting from the business. And, and you're being very diplomatic, but if you're, if I parse through the comments you're making, we're talking about distributions here, right? We're, we're, we're you know, when you talk about these multi-generational stakeholders, the baby boomer versus the Gen Xer, ultimately, be it a family business or a family office, one of the top three issues that is always going to be hot stove is the distribution policy. And, and what that will allow certain generations to be able to expect in terms of quality of life, et cetera. So how do you navigate this dividend policy distribution policy conversation effectively? Yeah, yeah Brian, I, I, I often say you know, that your shareholders may or may not read your quarterly newsletter, but they will cash their dividend check. So distributions are, are absolutely top of mind for shareholders. So I think navigating that is, you know, really taking them back to here's where we are with the business and understanding the trade-offs. There's just an inherent trade-off between distributions today and capital appreciation tomorrow. And there are some businesses that are naturally in a harvest mode whereby paying out substantial distributions today is probably the best thing because the reinvestment opportunities for that business are limited. And there are other businesses that are clearly in a planting mode where they are much better off deferring distributions to a future date in order to maximize their reinvestment potential today. So I think, again, that's where it comes back to the shareholder engagement and keeping them informed. Are you telling a consistent and compelling narrative about where your family business is in this planting versus harvesting spectrum? 
And are you helping your shareholders, one, understand what the business can and can't do, and then two, identify opportunities within the shareholder base to tailor those returns to what individual shareholder clientels might be looking And this is where there's, I think, a large misconception within next gens or people who aren't familiar with the business. If it is a family enterprise, there oftentimes is very limited liquidity. Right? The capital is very much wrapped into this business. Distributions come from the business, but they can be limited, but the appreciation can be huge in terms of the operating company. Whereas if there was a liquidity event, you know, you've got this bucket of capital now, but in order to hit those returns that will maintain that quality of life over multi-generational time horizon is extremely challenging. I don't think people understand the exponential growth of the family versus inflation versus your spend rate. It, It has to be a very either a very aggressive asset allocation and or just a very large corpus to begin with. Have you been seeing those conversations play out within this kind of education period of next gens, be it family business or family office? We have. And, um, you know, the, the, you've highlighted a really important challenge that people face, and that is the reinvestment decision. It, it's all well and good to see a big pot of money out there, but man, we could, we could trade our family business in for that. But the fact is that for successful family businesses, having your capital tied up, that illiquidity, which is painful to everyone, no one likes the illiquidity, but the illiquidity can, is often the source of outsized returns for the family. So when you trade in that illiquid asset for a more liquid portfolio, then you are more likely to feel the pain points that you just mentioned about over time, if we're taking a 25, 50, 100 year perspective on this, the returns on that liquid capital to sustain expected growth in the family could be hard to achieve relative to the returns the family can generate by owning and operating. And and this leads us to this next section, which, you know, if you have an investment policy statement, you talk about diversification, you're talking about hitting a certain return profile. This is what I see play out oftentimes with families where the family operating business was in timber or manufacturing or whatever, making whatever widgets. Then all of a sudden they have a liquidity event and they want to become experts in hedge fund fund of funds or lower middle market private equity buyout. And I could never really understand why they put themselves in that situation where they've got this kind of knowledge base already embedded in the family, yet they they automatically turn to these very esoteric asset classes that they know nothing about. Could you speak to this concept or dynamic that, that we see play out in the marketplace in terms of why people feel the need to be diversified and how that kind of goes to capital allocation? Yeah, I mean, you know, the, when we do shareholder education sessions, one thing that we say over and over again is return follows risk. And, you know, regardless of what you might hear someone say at the next cocktail party you're at, they're really, that is, that is an ironclad law, return follows risk. So, again, 
within a business that the family has operated for many years, that risk that generates an outsized return is known and the family likely has developed real expertise in managing that risk, managing that family business. And then if there is a liquidity event, I think it's it's natural for for that family to say, okay, well, we have we have these skills and and we know that we we've we've grown accustomed to these returns. And because return follows risk, if we want to maintain those returns, we're going to be taking new and different risks than we have in the past. And a lot of times those risks are not fully understood. Going from the risk of operating a, a business that's been in the family for 50 years to the risk of chasing returns with hedge funds and the strategies that you described. Those are two very different skill sets required to do that. And I'd love to hear your commentary on this. I've been speaking to more and more family office professionals where they think the actual number to run a proper single family office today with overhead costs to professionals, the competition for talent, is in that two hundred fifty to five hundred million dollar range, um, and I'm not sure families fully appreciate just how much talent costs and, and what it takes to get into this business. If you want to be, forget about doing direct deals, but if you just want to be in the right funds, or you want to pursue the right investment strategy. How do you communicate to these families the complexities involved if they are trying to stand up a true single family office? The challenges in standing up a true single family office are, as as you described, I mean, it's, I, mean I think that that explains why you know you, you've also seen the rise of the the multifamily office, you know, where where you've got you know folks who are trying to leverage their experience with their own family, and you know, provide those services to to other families and and allow them to avoid. Uh, the, the startup cost and the the many many opportunities to trip on something as you're as you're trying to stand up a single family office. So, you know the those hurdles that you you mentioned, you know two fifty five hundred million. I, I think those are correct. And even at those levels, I think you know you should carefully think about: is this really for us, or are there other platforms out there that we can that we can migrate to? to make sure to, to, to reduce our execution risk on putting this together. Does the current market environment have you reevaluating your investment strategy? There may be alternative opportunities you have yet to consider to safeguard your portfolio. We've created an exclusive guide for Capital Club listeners featuring the top alternative investments to consider when strategizing for inflation. Download it today at excelsiorgp.com slash download to learn how you can protect your portfolio, diversify your assets, and take advantage of tax benefits in today's market. That's excelsiorgp.com slash download. I completely agree. I mean, I know our family migrated to a multifamily office platform six, seven years ago, and it's made a ton of sense for us, and it's really been super helpful. So I think you'll see the continued proliferation of that platform for for a lot of individuals and families. And this ties into the next point that I, I wanted to talk to you about, which is this leadership transition that is undergoing amongst a lot of families. This has been much talked about 
for many years. I think it's actually starting to play out in real time now that boomers are getting into the mid to late 70s. And be it an acute issue, a death in the family, or just transition leadership planning, it is actually executing. And so you've got this odd dynamic where typically first-generation wealth creator, he's built this structure, he's put together this partnership, and now they're advocating for a transition. And if you're not a multifamily office platform, if you don't have the right professionals around you, you're identifying this this next leader. And I know our family's going through this right now where I tell people it was like Soviet democracy. You had to vote, but there was really only one candidate. And my father law very much runs the show. He's the majority shareholder. How do you, are there any best practices that you've found that actually are effective when you're trying to navigate this transition? Yeah, I I think the, the best thing is to be realistic. And by that, I mean, take a clear eyed view of what skill sets are needed to move the family forward from this day on. And those skill sets are probably not going to be the same as it was, as were required 30 years ago to bring the family from where it was then to where it is today. And You've got to be honest about, do these skill sets exist within our family? Or do we need to be looking outside to, to find this leadership? And, you know, we, we, we work with great family CEOs and we work with great non-family CEOs. And um, the most painful situations are those occasions when you're working with not great family CEOs. It's painful for that person to be in a position that you're not equipped for. It's painful for the rest of the shareholders to to see the underperformance. And it's painful for the employees and the communities that you're operating in when your business is, um, is not running the way it should because you don't have the right person in, in that spot. So I think, you know, taking an inventory of what are the skills we really need to move forward from this point. Acknowledging that those may not be the attributes that got us here. And then, you know, being very frank about do we have those skill sets within the family or do we need to look outside? And and in at least in our experience as a family, this is also I, I think an opportunity if you're undergoing this transition to allow people to gracefully exit if they don't want to stick around for the next chapter, and it's not an indictment against current leadership or the first-generation wealth creator, I, I, I just think to your point, it's a very challenging position to be in if you're undergoing that leadership role as somebody new. And in, in order to maintain what I call like the Thanksgiving dinner culture, right? Mm-hmm. I think you need to have an exit ramp for people be it kind of a buy-sell agreement, a put-call agreement, some type of valuation, which is where your firm comes in oftentimes. And, and uh, you've got to separate the, the family from the business perspective, I think, when you're having that conversation because it can get very emotional and people could interpret things as an indictment against, like I said, the leadership or, or the direction that the firm is moving in. But I do honestly think it is the best for many people, especially if you've got multi-generational 
different houses have different situations in terms of their abilities to maintain that quality of life or their family setups. So when you go into a new family relationship and they don't have a buy-sell agreement or a put call, how do you, how do you open up that conversation without making it be a very negative thing? Right. Those, those agreements, those buy-sell agreements are, are just essential to taking the stigma out of a shareholder needing liquidity. In, in, in some families, needing liquidity is really nothing short of a moral failing. And, you know, it, it, there's just a, a real stigma attached with any need for liquidity from the family business. And uh, that's just not, that's not realistic. As, as you said, everyone has different circumstances, different needs to thrive when they have the right shareholders. Shareholders who are on board and can withstand the risks inherent in the business and whose cash flow needs match the ability of the business to supply those cash flows. We talked earlier about you know, you're, you're planting or you're harvesting. Where are you in the cash flow in, in, in your life cycle? Well, there are some shareholders who are ideal for a planting business. There are other shareholders who are ideal for a harvesting business. And just because someone shares your last name doesn't mean that you should trap them in a business that they're not suited to own. So if, if we can kind of remove the stigma around, you know, Owning shares in the family business is somehow a, a moral imperative to being a member of the family and take a more uh, dispassionate kind of economic view of if we could start today and draw up our shareholder list from scratch, what would it look like? Who does it make sense to own this business? And then how can we get from where we are today to that point, treating everyone in an, in an equitable manner? And a buy-sell agreement, a foot-call agreement are just essential corporate documents to helping navigate those, those conversations. And in, in terms of your firm's role in that, if somebody's listening to this, and they're part of the family office or they have a family business and they don't currently have a buy-sell agreement. What's the first step? I mean, they, they contact a third-party firm like yourselves to come in and do the valuation. Maybe talk to you a little bit more granular what that looks like in terms of best practices and, and process and timing. Sure. So I, I think you want to you be talking to two people, at least two people, as you're going through this process, whether you have an existing buy-sell agreement or whether you don't have one and you're looking to generate one from scratch. And that is your attorney, and then that is a, a evaluation professional, like, like someone at Mercer Capital. And the reason I say that is we read a lot of buy-sell agreements that are obviously written by attorneys who don't fully understand valuation because they will contain language that is 
unhelpfully ambiguous as to what the real intent of the agreement is. Give you, give you a great example. A buy-sell agreement that says um, the seller will be entitled to the value of their shares when they exit. Well, that, that does not take into account the unavoidable reality that your family business has more than one value. And that's not me trying to, you know, avoid taking a firm, reaching a firm conclusion. It recognizes that value is always context dependent. So there's a difference between the value of the family business if we put a for sale sign on it and we try to get the best deal we can from a strategic buyer who may make drastic changes to the business when they buy it versus what the value of the family business is to us as a family, as a collective unit today, versus what an, the value of an interest in the family business is worth. So we see a lot of agreements that are not specific enough about what type of value is in view. Because once the agreement's triggered, then the buyer is naturally going to interpret that language to mean, well, this is just the value of your illiquid minority share, which is not much. And the seller is naturally going to interpret that language to mean, oh, this is, this is my pro rata slice if, it's, if we sold this business to our biggest competitor. So having an agreement in place, while it's important, is not sufficient. You, have, you need to have an agreement in place that everyone understands. And the best way to do that, and I know this, I know this sounds self-serving, but the best way to do that is to not defer the valuation. So instead of you know, just having this concept in reserve that when this agreement gets triggered, then we'll sort it all out. It's much better to say, okay, today, when you don't know whether you're going to be a buyer or a seller, we're going to have a valuation done that conforms to the language in this buy-sell agreement. And we're going to disseminate that conclusion. So everybody knows this is what the buy-sell agreement means because we've got a tangible example of it right here in our hands. And we're going to update this every year or two years so that when this triggering event occurs, we don't have to run and, well, Sam's going to hire his appraiser and they're going to interpret the agreement and Bill's going to hire his appraiser and they're going to interpret the agreement and we're going to see how close they are. Those, those types of arrangements, while they're very common, are just recipes for strife and failure. Much better to all the way along the process have a consistent view of here's what the value under our buy-sell agreement is. And if it, gets, if it gets triggered, here's where the transaction will occur. And, and that's where I, th I think it's, it's hard for people to understand that these buy-sell agreements sometimes are difficult to rationalize with estate planning techniques. Because on the one hand, 
you're trying to limit the valuation of the entity or corpus for estate planning purposes, potentially. But if you are looking to exit or liquidate your position, then you want the highest valuation possible. And those two things really cannot coexist. So you have to have, I think, pretty be clear-eyed about what the end game is. And that's where is this goes to that communication and education part of it, which is where a firm like yours can be really helpful. Right. Yeah, you know, I think, and, and we see this from time to time, that there's there can be an, an perhaps it's latent, but this this theory that the worse we treat our shareholders, the bigger a discount we can justify and the better it will be for us state tax planning. And while at some level that may be true, that seems like an unhealthy trade-off to me. We're going to treat each other poorly because we want to save taxes over time. I, I think there's a better way forward. And it, it does not have to, the, while the two goals, the, the buy-sell agreement goal and the estate planning goal, while there is some inherent tension between the two, I think when managed properly, the two don't need to get in each other's way nearly as, as badly as, as some people fear. And so taking that to its natural kind of conclusion or next step, do you typically see families formalize either in a memorandum or some other type of document, a process for evaluating a full on liquidity event or acquisition? Yeah. So you know, it's, it's good to be prepared for the day when somebody comes knocking on your door, right? Well-run family businesses are attractive to acquirers. So you're not going to make your best decision if the first time you've thought about this is once somebody's, you know, put a draft LOI in front of you. Um, so I think at the, at the board level, that needs to be a, a an evergreen agenda item where we're thinking about, are we, are we going to simply be reactive when someone shows up or do we have a clear, a clear plan and a clear vision for what the future of our family business is, you know, reacting never seems to go as well as being intentional on the front end and anticipating, you know, what are our needs for liquidity? What are our desires? What kind of price would it really take for us to, again, take on that reinvestment risk that we talked about earlier and choose to, to sell our, our family business? And so along those lines, as we wrap up the conversation, what is the, the current state of play? We're, we're recording this in November of 2022. There's been a lot of market volatility inflation is real. Have you seen transaction volumes dip down at all? Or is private equity still fairly active? Are families on the sidelines for the most part? Are they engaging in these types of processes? Yeah. You know, the in, in our experience, private equity is still very active. You know, they've, they've got, there's a lot of dry powder out there that they need to put to work. And I think they are more discriminating in environments like this. So the best run and the best performing family businesses, I think, still have a still have an attractive market. Uh, more marginal firms are probably going to get less attention 
than they may have in the past. And, and that will likely, I, I expect you'll see, you know, lower aggregate numbers in terms of deals getting done for the next quarter or two until people kind of get their sea legs with the new rate environment and kind of figure out what the, what the new normal is going forward. Well, Travis, I want to thank you for taking the time. I highly recommend the book and I know you all put out a weekly blog post that's really good and have a terrific newsletter, but could you maybe tell people kind of the best way to connect with you and the firm and maybe access some of the resources that you all put together? Yeah, so so two ways. They can visit us on, online at www.mercercapital.com. And then we also have a dedicated site for family business owners and the issues that they face, which can be found at www.familybusinessondemand.com. And there you'll have a host of videos, blog posts, articles, white papers, just lots of resources around any question that you might have regarding the financial realities of operating a family. Well, again, listeners, I hope you enjoyed this conversation with Travis. Like I said, his firm puts out terrific content, very timely. And so I highly recommend reaching out. Travis, one last question. Folks that come on the show, I ask everybody, is there a daily practice that you have that helps bring peace to your life? Hmm. Uh, absolutely. Prayer. Yeah. Definitely. Well. Yeah, I want to thank you for joining us and thank you for sharing that. And again, I encourage people to leave us a note, a rating, and, and let us know the favorite part of the conversation. Travis, take care. Okay, thanks so much for having me, Brian. Thank you for joining us for today's episode of The Capital Club. If you enjoyed what you heard in this episode, please like, rate, or leave us a review. And stay tuned for our next episode coming soon. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello HelloFresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more 
and is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 